0: It had been an emotionally exhausting day. It was that first Easter Sunday, less than 48 hours after seeing Jesus having been crucified and taken down from the cross. And the disciples were still dealing with the uh, emotional um, complexities that go along with seeing a friend who had died, feeling the guilt of their own having failed him in his hour of need. And now here they are gathered and earlier that morning they had received a report from three women who had gotten up at dawn and gone to the tomb only to see that the stone had been rolled away and they came excitedly back declaring not only was Jesus alive but they had seen him and the disciples had wondered, how can this be? I mean they were very well aware the people who died didn't come back again and so that added to the complexity of their emotion. And now here in the late afternoon, two guys who they knew, though they were not part of uh, the 12, but two guys who were followers of Jesus Christ had just been knocking at the door and telling this tale that they had been on their way to Emmaus when somebody joined them on their walk. And they were talking about everything that had taken place over the past several days. And then all of a sudden they recognized that the one who was walking with them was Jesus. And then as soon as they recognized him, that quickly he seemed to have disappeared they resolved to run as quickly as they could. And so they turned around, ran back to Jerusalem. They knocked on the door where the disciples were hanging out and told them that they had seen Jesus, that Jesus was alive, He had resurrected, and that He had shared with them from the beginning of the Scripture to the the point uh, of the end of what we would consider the Old Testament, how everything prophesied that Jesus would not only die, but that He would rise again. And so here are these disciples, those who had walked with Jesus for three years, those who were closest to him, now known as the eleven because Judas was no longer uh, with them. The eleven, although we are told later that Thomas was not present for whatever reason, but the eleven gathered here with a couple of other friends and pondering this news of a resurrection against the angst of the crucifixion. We're told in this passage that in the middle of their conversation about everything that had happened and and how these things would work together, they sensed another presence. There was another person that was there in their midst. And they looked and they saw that it was Jesus. And His opening words to them were, peace be with you. And then He asks them two questions. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise within your hearts? why are you troubled? The disciples must have thought. I mean, are are you kidding me? Why are we troubled? We watched you die. And now you're standing here. It's like being an episode of the Twilight Zone. What do you mean, why are we troubled? Of course, this is all very troubling. And yet, the more profound question, why do doubts arise from within your heart. When it comes to matters of faith, we all are prone to have questions. And when it comes to believing in something as crazy as a Middle Eastern man who once was dead, was crucified by the government officials, and then three days later uh, he was alive again, that he had resurrection it's going to prompt very profound questions and even doubts. When it comes to matters of faith, we don't just ignore these kinds of questions. We engage them. Now, that was certainly true for me in my own experience. When I was a senior in high school, I had uh, a sense of this crisis of faith moment. I had, had grown up and really, in one sense, never never doubted what I was told in Sunday school, that Jesus was the Son of God who died for our sins and then rose again on the third day. But while I never doubted, I never really took it seriously either. I never considered it very deeply. And here I was as a senior in high school in Nashville, Tennessee, and for my English credits, I had taken two semesters of Greek and Roman mythology for for literature credits. And having studied those uh, for two semesters and then also having served as the the teacher's assistant for the teacher as he taught those same courses uh, to to other classes, I was very well engulfed in these Greek and Roman mythologies. Now, I I never was tempted to believe the ridiculousness of the stories of, of these mythologies. But now as I, through the ministry of Young Life, was being confronted with the idea of a faith that was not just an intellectual assent, but a a personal belief that would shape my life, I began having these questions, these doubts began to arise for the first time. What if this idea of a resurrection, I mean, is is, as superstitious as Greek and Roman mythology? I mean, it, it certainly seems to be as ridiculous of a claim as some of the things that you would read in those things. I wrestled with this for a time those really became more of a smokescreen than a substantive question. And within a few months, that was resolved, and I had committed myself to being a follower of Jesus Christ. But even in the decades since that time, I have, and many times, wrestled with questions and doubts, and even had seasons of those things. Because it's common for every one of us. We all have these questions. We all have these doubts and we all struggle. Now, your questions, your doubts may not be the same as mine. They may be more profound questions than that which I was asking, or maybe they're more personal. Maybe you've been praying and feel like God is not answering your prayer. Maybe it's a relationship that you had hoped that would bring fulfillment to you, and now you've seen that fall apart. Maybe someone who is close to you has become very ill, or perhaps even died, and you wonder where God is and what God is doing, if God is even there at all. Every one of us faces these moments that cause us to wonder and cause us to question. And here in our text, Jesus comes in, speaking to the disciples, but speaking to us through the disciples, and he asks this question: why do doubts arise from within your heart? And that's the question that we want to tackle this morning. Now, if there's nothing else that you get this morning, I do want you to hear this. It is okay to wrestle with your doubts. I believe that the passage that we're looking at this morning invites us to wrestle with our doubts. Far more concerning than those who wrestle with their doubts are those who never wrestle with their doubts. Now, it it may be that they don't wrestle with their doubts because it just feels somehow wrong to Engage the questions that accompany our doubts because it feels like we're questioning God and and somehow that just seems inappropriate Or maybe it's somebody who doesn't wrestle with their doubts because really they don't take it all that seriously They're perfectly satisfied to live with a superficial spirituality But either way or regardless of the reason that somebody may choose to not wrestle with their doubts one thing that I can almost guarantee is that at some point in their lives, as in all of our lives, they're going to experience some sort of a, a crisis. The external pressures are going to be borne on them, and they are going to find that because they have never dug deep, that they don't have the internal fortitude to be able to withstand those pressures. And they're gonna feel like they're being swallowed up like a black hole or that from within them, a big sinkhole is opening up and everything that they are, everything that they hope, everything that they dream of is being swallowed up into that sinkhole simply because they have not taken the time to wrestle deeply, to deal with questions that bring the strength and faith that we all need. Tim Keller has written that a faith without doubts is like a body without antibodies. In other words, it is the doubts and the questions that go with it, and as we wrestle with those, that brings us strength that makes us able to fight off greater doubts, the the things that would crush us. Christians need to be asking questions, asking hard questions. Francis Schaeffer, a generation ago, in an essay he wrote called Two Constants, Two Realities, he said that asking questions or honest answers to honest questions is one of the things necessary for Christians to be able to offer to the complex world and our own day. And the reason that it's necessary for Christians to ask these hard questions that come from our doubts is because it's only when we wrestle with these questions, it's only when we wrestle with our doubts, that the faith that we profess becomes our own rather than just something that we are born into. And it's also only when we are wrestling with our own doubts that we are able to come alongside compassionately others as they are struggling, questioning, and doubting. It is perfectly okay. In fact, it is preferable that we would wrestle with our doubts. And this passage is telling us that, I believe, very clearly. And we see that in the way that Jesus treats those who are doubting. And that's really what we see the flow in this passage. What does Jesus think of those who are doubting? How does he feel about those who are doubting? And what we see in this passage is that Jesus continues to love those who are struggling with their doubts. He has compassion on them, and he brings comfort to them. That's what we're we're seeing going on here. He enters the room, and first thing he says is, peace to you, which was a common greeting in the Middle East at the time. But at the same time, he speaks these words without a, a hint of judgment, without a hint of scolding in his voice. And then he moves on and he asks the questions, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise within, from within your hearts? Now, before we answer the questions that Jesus is asking, I think it's important that we ask some questions about Jesus's questions. We need to ask ourselves this, what was it that they were doubting? And why were they doubting? And ultimately we need to ask the question, why was Jesus asking them why they were doubting? What was the motive behind Jesus's question? Now, we know what they were doubting. They were doubting a resurrection. And the reason they were doubting a resurrection is because resurrections can't happen. It's impossible. And yet it happened. And so that's what makes it a miracle. But they were doubting something that, in, in their understanding of the world, is impossible. And yet, here it is facing them. That's understandable that they were doubting that resurrection, along with the doubts of whether Jesus was raised again, were the self-doubts that they had, dealing with a sense of, of their own guilt and their now hopelessness, because they'd invested this time uh, in, in following Jesus, believing that he was the hope for the future. And now they had been wondering for almost uh, two days, how are we going to proceed? What is our future? And so they had doubts about what their future held. We know what they were doubting. We know why they were doubting. But the bigger question is this, why is Jesus asking them, why do doubts arise within your heart? Does Jesus not know? Does he not know the answer to the question? Is he fishing, asking them to give him some level of understanding? And I would say the answer to that is absolutely not. Jesus certainly knows very well why they are doubting, which is why he points out why do doubts arise from within your heart. He knows the source and he knows what it is that they're doubting. But he's asking the question, as God does throughout the scriptures, not because he is in need of the information, but because he wants his disciples to understand their own doubts. He wants us to understand our doubts. Because it's in understanding our own doubts, where they come from, why we have them, that we are able to see those doubts diminish in our own experience. You see, we need to understand this. Our doubts are not mere intellectual struggles. Now, sometimes they are we may have things in our lives that we expect to happen or hope to happen that you know we we doubt about it's memorial day weekend and so we might say we're hoping to have a picnic someplace with some with some family keeping our 6 feet apart so that we are doing our proper social distancing But then you may look at the weather forecast, and the weather forecast says that it's going to have stormy all day. And so are we going to have the picnic? I doubt it. And and we have those kinds of doubts, and it doesn't do any damage to us because we live with those. We are not in control of all things, and there are things that we doubt. And those are merely intellectual doubts. But when it comes to doubt on something to the level of our faith, it goes more than just in the superficial of day-to-day life from which we uh, are able to adjust. But it begins to eat uh, within us, and it begins to erode uh, within us. And when we have doubts about our faith, we then begin to have doubts about our identity. We begin to have doubts about uh, our hope we begin to have doubts about all sorts of things. And God can seem very, very distant. And if we go through long periods of doubt where God seems very distant, the hopelessness begins to engulf us because we feel as if we'll never be able to bridge that gap and have that sense of peace that God's presence brings again. Or we may even feel like hypocrites because while we've not wanted to chuck everything because our faith has not been proven wrong, and because it has been so much a part of us, we live externally one way, and yet internally we feel something very different, and we feel hollow inside. And Jesus is very well aware of how our doubts can eat at us and move us, become how our doubts can become a doorway to depression and to become debilitating. And so as He's confronting the disciples and He asks this question, why do doubts arise within your hearts. He's wanting us to explore. He's wanting us to examine. He's wanting us to be able to answer that question for ourselves. But then Jesus also does something else. And it's important that we see this because when we have those moments of doubts, when God seems far, when we're certain that God would be disappointed in us, it is Jesus coming to those who had failed Him in a very vivid way. And He invites them to be restored in relationship. He says to them, touch my hands, touch my feet, touch the wounds that are there. And what he's doing is not only inviting them into the relationship, but he's pointing them to the cross where those wounds came from. He's reminding them of what they already knew because then he goes through the scriptures and said, this is the way that it's always been planned to be. This is the way that it had to be. The son of man had to die. He died the death to pay the penalty that humanity owed for their sin. He had to die. It has always been that way. As He shows them the wounds, they're reminded from Isaiah that it is by His stripes, by His wounds, that we find our healing. And so He's inviting them to remember what they had understood and to experience it in a personal relationship with them with no rejection whatsoever. And then he's reminding them of the necessity of the resurrection because the resurrection is key. The resurrection is staring them literally in the face because here is the one who once was dead but now is alive. And the resurrection is the key because it is the thing that gives us the hope in that everything that had been promised is very real and that is very true. See, Christianity is different from every other philosophy and religion. In every other philosophy, in every other religion, it is based in a code of conduct and, and a... And, and a in some sort of of belief system. And if you keep the code of conduct and you hold to the premises of the belief system, things will pretty much go well for you. And while Christianity has a code of conduct, and there is a philosophy that we call theology, it is not rooted in the philosophy or even in the code of conduct. Christianity is rooted in whether or not a man in the Middle East died and rose again to the point that the Apostle Paul even says that if Jesus didn't rise again, we should be pitied more than anybody else. Everything hinges on that, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the code of conduct and the, and the philosophies, they are worthless and should be disregarded regardless of the benefit that we would think that we'd get. Because as the Scripture says, if we benefit for this life only, then we have no real benefit at all. And so Jesus is standing there before them, reminding them of this resurrection, because if Jesus was standing there in fulfillment with all of the prophecies, they had seen Him die, but now He is there, they can believe that, they can believe every other promise of God. And the ultimate overarching promise is this, that Jesus died to reconcile a people who had wandered from God. He died to pay the penalty for you, for me, for the disciples, for everyone who would believe and he restores them into relationship. And as part of that restoration, Jesus goes and does something further. He tells them not only is he alive, but that the repentance and the forgiveness of sins uh, that he promised and that they now could experience, that was going to be declared to the ends of the earth. And the disciples said, that's great. What's the plan? And Jesus says, you're the plan. I'm going to invest in you. And Jesus, therefore, If we ask this question, how does Jesus relate to, what does he think of those who have doubts, who have questions, and even those who have failed, here he is standing in the midst, in no way rejecting, in no way scolding, in no way uh, uh, judging, inviting them to believe in the promise of the gospel, of his death and his resurrection and then inviting them, commissioning them to be engaged on mission. Jesus takes those who have doubts, those who have failed, those who are broken, those who are unworthy, and he brings them in and commissions and then promises that he's going to empower them. And Jesus tells them that when the time comes, they're to stay in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes and the Spirit would empower them in the mission that they are to engage in. And so we come to this passage and we see that it's okay for us to wrestle with our doubts. In fact, it is preferable that we wrestle with our doubts. This passage invites us to wrestle with our doubts because Jesus does not reject us because of our doubts, but wanting to make us whole, he wants us to deal with our doubts. So, with that understanding, we do have some practical questions. How do we deal with the doubts when we find them in our lives? Well, we find some things from our passage and from elsewhere in Scripture. I think the first thing that we need to recognize here is self-awareness is essential. Jesus asks the question of the disciples, why do doubts arise from within your heart? He's asking them to be aware of what are their doubts and what is the source of their doubts. Why are the doubts arising? When doubts arise in our lives, we need to be aware of them. We need to recognize what is the source of the doubt. By recognizing them, we can disempower them. We need to pray because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's within us, is at work, enabled us to give answer and to respond to our doubts. Third, we need to doubt our doubts. Now, that might seem a little silly or, or oxymoronic, but here's what I mean by that. See, when we doubt, it's like some voice is speaking in our head and asking these questions is that true? How do these things work together? Do you really believe that? And this voice is very compelling. And so therefore the doubts and the more the voice speaks and the more we uh, uh, entertain the doubts without digging into them, without identifying their source, uh, the more power they seem to have leading us towards uh, a, a discouragement and a depression. But here's the thing. As one scholar had said uh, uh, at one point that uh, really resonated with me, we seem to have this idea that when doubts speak that God has to prove himself to be true and we take the doubts at their face value. Why do we not instead take God and his promises at face value and make our doubts prove themselves to be authoritative? In such, we doubt our doubts. If the doubts arise, we ask the doubts, what is their source? What is their authority? And by what right do they have to disagree with the promises of God? We need to do what Jesus is calling the disciples to do here. We need to refocus on the gospel itself, remind ourselves of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection, reminding ourselves that we it is not just some last-minute plan, but that it had always been the plan as we saturate ourselves in the reading of Scripture. We need to root ourselves in the promises of God because if the resurrection is true, then every other promise of God is real and that we can trust it. And if we are aware, conscious, and constantly feeding on these promises of God, when doubts arise, we will have an understanding that is able to confront the doubts. And lastly, and more practically, although it's not in the text, but it's something that's from my own experience, both in my own life and in counseling, I would say this as well, that we need to ignore those who would shame us for our doubts. There are people, some of whom are well-intentioned, other of whom are just judgmental, regardless of the intention, but when we are facing doubts and they become aware, they may tell us that we shouldn't doubt, just believe, or just ignore the doubts and somehow make us feel like there's a problem by doubting. And so we ignore the doubts as the advice that often comes, one form or another. We need to ignore those who would do that for us because the invitation of Jesus over against them is to ask the question, why are we doubting? To engage our doubts, self-awareness, and then disempower our doubts by doubting them. Just some practical ways in which we can deal with the doubts that are inevitably going to face every one of us. And ultimately, remember, every one of us is going to doubt. And it's okay to wrestle with our doubt. And that as we look at this passage, this is a lesson for those who do doubt and those who will doubt. That it's not the strength of our faith that sustains us when we are struggling. Instead, it is the faithfulness and the strength of the one in whom our faith is in that matters.